sermon tonight out of the book of Ezekiel. It's from Ezekiel chapter 9, Sighing and Crying. Now, uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at Ezekiel chapter 8, and in Ezekiel chapter 8, uh, Ezekiel sees God takes Ezekiel. Ezekiel's in Babylon, but God in vision takes Ezekiel to Jerusalem, not physically, but in vision takes him to Jerusalem, to the temple, and shows him that they are doing uh, four different things. They are worshiping idols, they are worshiping images, they are worshiping Tammuz, and they are worshiping the sun. Four different things, four different distinct different things, and we talked more about that when we did that chapter. Uh, but that leads into chapter 9. Uh, understanding what happened in chapter 8 is important as we go into chapter 9, and then even into chapter 10, which we'll do a little bit tonight as well. And we'll look at this a little bit more another week. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that. So into Ezekiel 9. Ezekiel 9, chapter 9, uh, 9, verse 1. He called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. Now, so so this is what uh, God is, Ezekiel hears God saying, um, to let those who have charge over the city Take a deadly weapon in his hand. Well, who are those that are charged of the city? It's obviously not the, what we would typically think of the men and women are in charge of the city because we just saw in chapter 8 that they were all bowing down to Tammuz and to uh, the sun and, and, and to the idols and to the images. So that's not who he's referring to. He's not talking about human beings here. There's something else here, and we're going to see who's really in charge of the city that he is speaking to and who will take a deadly weapon in their hands. Suddenly six men came from the directions of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So here it mentions six men, uh, but we'll see they're not just men, more than men, and often the Bible refers to um, Beings that are not men, but they appear as men and refers to them as men. And, uh, and they appear, and again, we need to remember that this is in vision. This is not literally taking place before Ezekiel's eyes. He's in vision seeing this. And the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub where it was to the threshold of the temple. He called to the man clothed in linen with the writer's inkhorn, Go through the midst of Jerusalem and, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in it. So several things here. The glory of God was in the Kodesh Kodeshim, the Holy of Holies, between the two cherub, above the mercy seat. But here it lifts up from that spot and goes over towards the threshold. So the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, is leaving the temple. God's presence is leaving the temple because of the abominations that are taking place inside the temple uh, that the leaders and and the Levites are committing in the temple. Again, we mentioned all those, those different kinds of worship that was going on there. And so he has this man or this being that's appearing like a man with this clothed in linen, with this inkhorn, and he says, go and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done in the, the land. 
Now, not this week, but another week, we are going to discuss what that mark is. There is a specific mark. It says, put a mark on the foreheads of the men, who, and women, of course, who sigh and cry over all abominations that are done in the land. And so, like I said, we'll get into this. So there's a mark of the beast, but there's also a mark of God. And I think more people are familiar with the phrase or term mark of the beast, although they have no idea what the mark of the beast is in, many, in most cases, I have found. Um, but, the, but they have no idea that there is a mark of God. And there is. The Bible specifically says, put a mark, a mark of God, upon their heads. And so uh, we're going to talk about that again another week. But tonight we're going to get into what this sighing and crying is about. Because it's those that sigh and cry who receive the mark. So more importantly, in some ways, than the mark is knowing how to get to receive that mark. And in order to be able to get to receiving that mark, we have to be among those who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done in it. So we want to be those type of people so that we can receive the mark of God and thus not receive the mark of the beast. Okay? All right. So... Um, in Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4, put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done. In Psalm 119, 136, it, it's kind of a parallel. It says, rivers of water run down from my eyes, sighing and crying. Why are rivers of water running down from the psalmist's eyes? Because men don't keep your law. And they weren't. They were committing the abominations we just saw, participating in false worship, incorrect worship. And so they're, they're sighing and crying is tears running down their eyes, and the reason is, is because of what is being done. And we'll get more into that again uh, another week. Back to Ezekiel chapter four, 9, verse 5. To the others, he said in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity, utterly slay old and young, maidens and young children and women, but do not come to anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. So if they're beginning with the elders, then obviously when he said, call these leaders to come with this sword and the battle axes, obviously it wasn't the physical men and women leaders, the human leaders, because the human leaders we saw were worshiping the idols, and they're the ones um, that began getting slain as these six other beings, and we'll see who they are in a little bit, um, come into play. But this, of course, and that's important, I think. I met someone, only once, thankfully, who felt this was going to be fulfilled literally, and that he was being called to be one of the ones that would have to go and slay those whom he considered were, uh, not, did not have the mark of God. And so, again, that's very dangerous thinking that uh, you know, that would take place, that God might call us someday to be the ones to go around slaying everyone whom, whom we consider a heretic. Um, and so, so, again, we'll get into who those are, but we saw there are these six that come, and this is in vision, and everybody, so go forth. And uh, it's like, and so then he said to them, defile, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. They went out and killed in the city. 
Now, I guess one of the ways we know that this is not physical men is because this actually gets fulfilled. Well, how does it get fulfilled? Well, I mean, I guess it is a little bit, but it's Babylon who comes through. Right? It's Babylon whom God uses to come through and to slay the elders and everyone in the city. But it's not some righteous Israelite or some righteous Jew that, that uh, is now the leader who goes and slays. It's God using Babylon that actually comes and does the slaying, not someone that God, uh, you know, God's people that he calls. So the slaying does take place. It doesn't take place right in Ezekiel's presence, but God is showing Ezekiel what is going to come to pass. That the city is going to be destroyed, just like he was showing Jeremiah and others. The city is going to be destroyed. Babylon's going to come through, and they're going to kill them even into the temple. And that is what happened. While they were killing them, I was left alone, and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? This is the sighing and crying. Ezekiel could easily, after seeing what God showed him in chapter 8, all those abominations, Ezekiel very well could have had the feeling when he heard the message, go and slay and slay all these. Rightly, they deserved it. Good. God is finally bringing justice. He's getting these ones who've defiled God's temple out of the way, and so God's worship can take place again, that God's temple can be rebuilt and restored and, and, and cleansed. But he doesn't. Instead of being thankful that the wicked are going to be destroyed, this is how Ezekiel responds. He falls on his face and he cries out, O oh Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? He's pleading with God, like Abraham before Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham could have said, yeah, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, they caused me no trouble. Besides that, God promised me all the land anyway, and so these guys are eventually going to have to go sometime or another. Might as well be sooner than later. So go ahead, take out Sodom and Gomorrah now, and take out the others you know, later, or whenever you want, and I'll be happy with that. No, Abraham, and Abraham no doubt knew what was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah, for the most part. And yet he pleaded with God not to destroy the city, even down to 10 people. That's the type of sighing and crying. That's the type of praying. That's the type of people that God is looking for that will receive his mark. That's how Ezekiel does it. And that's in chapter 9. He's praying. He's crying out, calling upon God to have mercy. And if there's anything that can be done, any more time, any more message, if you need me to write something more to them and send it to them, or raise someone else up to warn them one more time, Lord, if, if there's any opportunity that any can be saved, please save them. That's the sighing and crying. At least in Ezekiel. We're going to see more. Chapter 9, verse 9, and he said, the iniquity, this is God now speaking, the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of adverse, uh, perversity, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land, the Lord does not see. Now it's interesting, Ezekiel's praying, oh Lord, please have mercy, please 
Don't destroy them all. And God's response is not, well, didn't I show you the abominations that they were doing? Didn't I show you them worshiping the sun? Didn't I show you them crying for Tammuz? Didn't I show you these things? No, God says, their biggest problem is they have said that God has forsaken the land, that the Lord does not see. In direct contrast to the word of God, where he says he does not, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. The problems that come our way are because of our own choices, not because of God. And so the biggest problem that we can run into is by blaming God for the things that take place in this world. Blaming God for our own wrong choices or blaming God for other people's wrong choices because God gives free choice. Even when we're doing right, like Joseph, sometimes bad stuff happens to us. Sometimes we've got horrible brothers and horrible pharaohs, but sometimes that's just how it is. But we shouldn't blame God. Joseph didn't blame God. And here they're blaming God and saying, God forsaked us, God's not there, and so let's go worship these other things. Verse 10, As for me also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own heads. God says, judgment's going to come. Thank you for praying. Thank you for being concerned. I appreciate it very much. You'll receive the mark of God, but nonetheless, i got to do what i got to do. And that's how it's going to be. There will be a judgment day, and God will do what he's going to do. But our job is not to root him on. <laughs> Go ahead and slay him faster. Slay him more. <laughs> and let me point some out to you that uh, maybe you missed and maybe you didn't know about. Our job is to be pleading for mercy for them that they might come to know the Lord. And in verse 11, just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded. So there again, he's showing Ezekiel and saying, I, and saying to God, I, I've done it, I've commanded, but obviously Babylon has not come yet in this point in Ezekiel chapter 9. So again, it's all in vision, so he's just seeing that. It's not the reality that took place. Reality was Babylon comes, because, and Babylon's only able to come because God allows it. Chapter 10, verse 1. I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. So he's seeing God. And when we sigh and cry, like Ezekiel did, for the abominations done in the land, and sighing and crying is dramatically different than grumbling and complaining. A lot of people think that they're sitting there grumbling and complaining about all the sins in the congregation. Everything that this person did and everything that that person did and everyone who did them wrong and they're rebuking left and right and they think they're calling out sin. They're sighing and crying about the abominations they've seen in the land. And the rabbi this and that, that's not sighing and crying. That again is grumbling and complaining and gossiping and Judge, being judgmental. Sighing and crying, as we saw, is if you see something wrong, you go home and get on your face and cry out to the Lord for the Lord to forgive and cleanse and convict and transform and change through the blood of Messiah and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Ezekiel prays that way, he sees the throne of God. And he sees the cherubim. And there again, gives us a hint, 
of who those leaders over Jerusalem really were. Not some men with battle axes, but the Lord God who is over it all and who has his cherubim in charge of really, in charge of this world, who allow things to take place because of the battle that's going on between God and Satan and, and our choices that he needs to allow at this time certain disasters and things to take place. It's not because God has forsaken us or closed his eyes to us. Verse 2, Then I spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. And the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court, and the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the cloud was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. So again, the Lord's glory over the temple, he sees all, his presence is there, filling the place. And he has this man coming and getting the coals from the altar where the sacrifices took place covered in the blood of the lamb slain, the forgiveness and the mercy. Now, Daniel chapter 9, we see a very similar scenario take place. I set my face to the Lord God to pray with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. He's praying. He's crying out to the Lord with fasting, and sackcloth, ashes for God's people. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, we have sinned against you. We have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his ways. We have sinned against him. Daniel is sighing and crying for the abominations done in the land. And again, he's not pointing out everybody else's sins. He's praying for God to have mercy, for God to forgive and he's including himself in the prayer. Not a holier than thou. God, I'm so thankful that I am righteous and I'm not like those others who are doing this and doing that. And God, yeah, have some mercy upon them, but I don't need it. Now Daniel, I mean, we have basically the majority of his life recorded in the scriptures. And we'll see where even Ezekiel puts him on the same level as Noah. And one other person, Noah, Daniel, and I forget what the other one is, but he puts him on the same level while he's still alive. And even when the Babylonian leaders and princes tried to search out every memo about him and every email that he ever mailed and everything that ever took place and talked to everyone who ever knew him and roommates back in the college days. They searched his life record and they could not find anything wrong with him. 
I have no doubt they even tried to pay some people to say nasty things, and no one, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. And yet Daniel doesn't say, I'm so good that I can pray for all those wicked people out there. Daniel prays, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. That's the sighing and crying that God could place his mark upon. We have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. We have not obeyed his voice. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, for we do not present our supplications because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Yeah, Daniel could have said, oh, I did this and I did that, and no one's able to find any evil in me. So hear my prayer because of my righteousness. The righteous prayer, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And God, that's me. Now the righteous, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much, and there is one and only one that is righteous, and that is why we pray in his name and not in our own name, right? That ending in Yeshua's name is not just something we tack on so God knows we're done. It's in his name, in his righteousness, God, hear our prayer because of what he did. God, hear our prayer because of his goodness because of his merit, because I have none to boast of. Any good that ever came out of me or any of us is because of your great mercies, Lord God, not because of me. That's the sighing and cry. Seeing ourselves as part of the corporate thread of humanity. Not a part, not an us and them, not a we're the righteous and they're the wicked, but all of us continually needing the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Now, it doesn't mean that we continually live sinful lives so that we continually receive the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Because again, Daniel's life showed that he lived a righteous life before men. Even according to their low standard, even according to God's high standard, they could not find anything wrong with him. Except that he prayed too much. And may that be the only thing they can find against us. And it's not just that he prayed too much, it's how he prayed. And this is how he prayed. Corporately repenting for everyone's sins and including himself as part of that. And while I was speaking, so that's what he prays, and then what does he see? While I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, while I was in prayer, Gabriel, and, and I shortened the verses here, but it's called Gabriel the man, and Gabriel's an angel, but Gabriel the man reached me about the time of the evening offering and informed me of the Messiah. So here again is an example of an angel referred to as a man, this is in chapter 8 of 9 of Ezekiel. But what Daniel sees, Ezekiel, when he prayed that way, he saw the glory of God. He saw the throne of God. When Daniel prays this way, he sees the Messiah. 
And he gets a prophecy of exactly the time when the Messiah would come to this earth and be immersed. Exactly the time when the Messiah would be cut off and die for our sins and put an end to the need for sacrifices and oblations. He would see the exact time when the gospel would go to the world. And when we pray that way, we will see the glory of God. And we will see the Messiah as well. So how do we pray that way? We just start praying that way? We just start adding we on to everything we pray? We just start crying? We cut some onions and so it helps our <laughs> prayers? Not by our righteous deeds we can do nothing, but we can pray, Lord, give me your heart. Give me your love for the people all around me. Give me your love. When we start thinking, oh good, I'm glad they got bombed. Oh, I'm glad they got sick. Oh, I'm glad, you know, that they deserve that. I'm glad it didn't come to me. When Satan starts putting those temptation thoughts into our minds, they deserve to be demoted. God will come into them after what they did to me. When those thoughts start coming into our minds, we pray, we confess our carnal nature, we accept the forgiveness through the death of the Messiah, and we ask him to give us his spirit and his heart in his mind. His Holy Spirit comes into us and then he begins to give us that kind of burden, that type of prayers. You can't manifest those prayers. You can't make those prayers up. You can read them wrote, but if it's not real from the heart, God will see. God knows. But God can give us those kind of prayers. God can give us that kind of heart. God can give us that kind of love. And that's what God did in Ezekiel. And that's what God did in Daniel. That's what God's looking for in his last days. We don't have to worry so much about the mark of the beast. God's waiting on a people that have the mark of God. That's what he's waiting on. He's not waiting on the beast to get worse. He's waiting on the people of God to get humbler. Ezra. What chapter do you think? Chapter 9. Ezra prays this way as well. Ezra 9, verse 1, The leaders came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Megabites, the Dogbites, and everything else. Now, this is interesting. I didn't think of this when the verses came together, but Ezekiel was praying before the temple was destroyed. Daniel was praying after the temple was destroyed and before it was rebuilt. Ezra is praying as the temple is being rebuilt. And he comes from Babylon and he comes and he sees the people that had already come and what they had already started doing in their building. And he sees they begin intermarrying. They remain faithful in Babylon. They come back and now they're marrying all these other people and participating in the worship of their gods. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives so that the holy seed is mixed. I tore my garment and plucked out some of the hair of my head 
and beard, and I sat down astonished. And then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel came to me because of the transgression of the people, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. He's just burdened with this. And he's just sitting down and he begins to cry and pull out his hair and mourning. And as he begins praying this way and acting this way, others are drawn to it as well. We want to see other people repenting. We want to see other people coming to the Lord. It's not by condemning them. It's not by pointing out all their sins. It's by praying for them, interceding for them, and loving them with God's heart. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God and I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Just like Daniel. Our sin. Now this is very interesting because Daniel's able to pray you know, kind of this corporate, yeah, or we haven't prayed like we should pray, and you know, because Daniel could say, well, hey, I missed a few prayer times, or, you know, I didn't pray as long as I should have, or I fell asleep a few times in prayer. So yeah, I, I, we haven't prayed like we should. But Ezekiel's, or Ezra's sin that he sees is them intermarrying. Now, he didn't do that, I'm sure. But he still prayed corporately for the forgiveness of a sin that he did not directly participate in. When we see ourselves so interconnected with the body of God, we will not say as hands or ears, well, those feet, they can walk off the cliff if they want to. I don't care. Tough luck on them. <laughs> because we go with them. We see ourselves so interconnected with the body of God that their sins are our sins as well. And their mistakes are our responsibility as well. I heard a man saying that uh, he used to joke when, when he was in the Navy, uh, that uh, on the ship way out in the ocean, well, let's go sink the, uh, the Admiral's cabin. Of course, you can't sink one cabin on a ship without sinking the whole ship, you know? They all go down together. We need to see ourselves in that way, corporately, together, united, together. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty, and our iniquities, we were delivered to the sword, to the captivity, plunder, and humiliation. Now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a revival in our bondage. Ezekiel's praying, and again, he's still corporate, still seeing himself with the people, not just the people in his day, but he sees himself as part of the people who were before his ancestors, from the very beginning we have done these things. He didn't say, well, yeah, from the very beginning, Abayu and, and Nathan, Dathan and, and, and these others back, and, and Korah, and all those guys back then, yeah, they made a bunch of mistakes. Now, since the beginning, we have. 
corporate with humanity. We can blame Adam and Eve for it all, but we're part of them. We're with them. That's how Ezra's praying and sees himself. And thus he no doubt receives the mark of God. And while Ezra was praying, now we're into chapter 10. So chapter 9, he's praying this corporate prayer of repentance, sighing and crying, truth sighing and crying type of prayer. Well, what happens in chapter 10? While Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and bowing down before God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly and said, We have transgressed against our God. We have taken pagan wives. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. God allows Ezra to see the glory of God go forth in these people's hearts. And a true repentance take place. Ezra, he could have come into the land and he could have said, he saw that and he could have pulled out his Torah scroll and said, look at it, it says right here, do not intermarry with unbelievers. Do not be unequally yoked. But rather, he sat there among them astonished pulled out his hair, wept, cried, and prayed corporately with the people for God to forgive them all, including himself. And the Holy Spirit touched people's hearts and melted them. And they confessed their sin, and they turned from the sin, and a great revival takes place in the land. We want to see great revival. That's how we need to pray for one another. That's how we need to pray for our families. That's how we need to pray for the congregation. That's how we need to pray for the city and the surrounding area and this county and this state and this country and this world. Even those really bad countries, the really bad leaders. We need to pray for them all and we'll see the revival of God take place. Doesn't mean everyone will repent like here, but we'll see a revival, true revival take place. God's calling for people who will sigh and cry so we can receive the mark of God. Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 9. The Lord God gave the two tablets of stone. And the Lord said, Arise and go down, for your people have made themselves a molten image. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you a nation mightier and greater than they. What an opportunity. Moses up on the mount with God, 40 days, build the golden calf down below. God gives them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the Torah. God says, go down there, see what the wickedness they're doing. I'm going to destroy them all, and I'm going to make a new nation. Forget about the 12 tribes of Israel. Forget about the Israelites. We're going to now call it the Moseyites. We're going to make a nation out of Moses. And it'll be mightier and greater than they. People won't look back to Abraham. People will look back to Moses. 
quite an offer. The people deserved it. I fell down before the Lord another 40 days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin. I was afraid of the hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you, but the Lord listened to me at that time also. So Moses goes up and he prays for another 40 days and 40 nights. And he's praying for the people. And God hears him. So what was he praying? We have to go to the Exodus version of the same story, chapter 32, 32. Forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. If you can't forgive them, I'm going down with them. Blot my name out. I'll give up heaven for them. I'm united with them. You've offered me a nation out of me. I've got my two sons. Maybe you'll give me more. But no. Not only do I surrender not having a nation after me, I surrender eternal life. Take my name out of your heavenly book. Let me be in place of them. Let them have my seat. Let them have my mansion. That's corporate repentance. Praying for them. That's the heart of God. He enters in with them. And that's the kind of prayer God hears. And God answered. God did it for Ezekiel, and for Daniel, and for Ezra, and for Moses. And God will do that for us as well. He can give us those type of prayers, that type of heart. And others as well. We mentioned Abraham. He just didn't happen to be in chapter 9. So, <laughs> Paul, Romans chapter 9. I tell you the truth in Messiah, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Ruach HaKodesh that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from the Messiah for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Just like Moses. Blot my name out. Call me accursed. Condemn me in place of them. I wish I could trade places if that's what it would take for them to be in heaven. So instead of being condemning and judgmental, as much of the world thinks we are, if we prayed like this, if we truly had God's heart, they could accuse us, but it wouldn't be real. That will take away our condemnations. Many people know John 3.16. But do we know John 3.17? The verse that follows it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. And if he didn't send Yeshua to condemn the world, he certainly didn't send you or me to condemn the world. <laughs> 
but to pray and intercede for them. And again, we can't make this up. Oh, we could say it. We could say, God, blot my name out. But we can't do that in our own strength and really mean it. But God can place it there. God can do that in us. God can so transform us that we love others above ourselves. Now, God didn't take Paul or Moses up on this offer. But God will bring us to that point of loving them so much that that's what we'll pray. And not just for good people in our lives, not just for the people we like, but for our enemies, those who despitefully use us. That's what it means when he says, love your enemy as yourself. And the ultimate corporate repentance didn't fall in chapter 9 in the Bible, but is the Messiah himself. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He has, he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so what Moses and Paul prayed to happen to them so that others could be saved, the Messiah actually did. Prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years in advance. He did take our place. He did become accursed for us. He was blotted out for our sake. Now, he was resurrected, thankfully. But when he went down, he was willing to be blotted out for all eternity. That's what he gave up in dying for us. Not just a few hours on this life. He went down dying the second death, the eternal death. That's what he willingly gave up for us. Not seeing the Father's face ever again was what he was willing to do. God didn't take him up on that part. He died for our sins. He saw himself as part of corporate humanity. God easily could have sat up on his throne and said, those Adam and Eve, those idiot humans, just blot them out. Start over, I can create some more dust and I can breathe into that dust as well as easily as I did to Adam and Eve. I can make another rib and pull out another woman. But God entered in with us. And when we have God's heart, that's how we'll pray. That's how we'll be. That's how we'll love. And we will see the glory of God. And so as we pray tonight, If we haven't been praying this way, let us ask God to cleanse us of our selfish prayers. If we haven't seen ourselves as corporate humanity and just as sinful as everyone on this earth and united in their sins, then let us pray 
and ask God to give us eyes to see ourselves as God himself saw himself. Taking on flesh, taking on humanity. If we truly don't love our neighbors and our enemies to the point where we'd be willing to let them have our place in heaven, let them have our key to the mansion. And as we pray, let us ask God to give us that kind of prayer. Let us pray together. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, forgive us for our selfishness in our actions, in our thoughts, in our prayers. Forgive us for our condemnation of others. Forgive us of our judgmentalism. Forgive us for thinking ourselves holier and haughty and better than others. And forgive us for not interceding and praying for others. Forgive us for even secretly rejoicing or being glad about others' downfalls. Lord, wash us clean through the blood of Messiah. Give us your heart. Give us your mind. Give us your life. Take our carnal, natural nature and bury it away in the Messiah. Blot it out. And fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your life. And live it out of us, even in our prayers. In Yeshua's holy name. Amen.